we look at accessibility as something which is ugly. My question always is, well, why can we not look at this as an opportunity again for innovation and creativity? This is Designing for Humanity, a podcast by SY Partners about designing a future that's made for all of us and the best in us. I'm Rhi Norgaard, and I'm talking with some of the most interesting people I know about how we as designers can tackle the most complex challenges our society faces right now. How can we use design to reimagine the ways we interact with each other and with the world? I'm here to start the conversation about what new ways of thinking and methods are needed. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Sinead Burke. Well, not in person exactly. Uh, Sinead is kind enough to join us all the way from right outside Dublin. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We first met a couple of years ago when we were traveling together on Amtrak to D.C. We were both heading to an event celebrating inclusive design at the White House. We had the luxury of time then, and we were able to talk about everything from teaching children table manners to celebrity obsession to fashion and what design might be good for. Sinead's a writer, an academic, and a brilliant advocate. She's spoken at TED, at Davos, and always brings such an important perspective on the conversation about designing for humanity. I can't wait to get into talking to you about your perspective on inclusion and design today. Thank you for having me. Of course. I want to start with this notion of impact through design, and design as... I know from you telling me personally, but also from your talks, has always impacted your life. When did you first become aware of the idea of design as the thing that was impacting you, as the thing that was either helping or not helping you in your life? I probably shouldn't admit it, but it's only in the past two years that I've been using the language and vocabulary of design. Because when I was younger, I used to explain it to myself and to other people, particularly students, because my background is in education, that right. the world wasn't built for me. And I used to use the language of construction because I felt mm. in many ways that it was the bricks and mortar that impeded me rather than a design process because I didn't have a background in design. And it wasn't until very naively I was invited to do a TED Talk in New York. And they said, you know, what we would like you to talk about is the idea of design. And I kind of replied back into an email going, and that's really interesting, but I'm not a designer and I have no expertise within design. I really don't think I'm the best person for this idea. And a wonderful woman named Chi Perlman came back to me and said, you absolutely are because everything that you speak on and everything that you advocate for is framed around the domain of design. And I began to cognitively take a step back and reflect on it. And I realized actually what was inhibiting my independence was not necessarily just construction because the construction was the physicality of the design, but it was the design and the design thinking that has occurred for time immemorial almost that is impacting upon me on everyday life and everyday kind of interactions. And it's less about design being implemented as a way to create a barrier for me to the rest of the world. But it's actually just that those who have been in the position of power have never considered me within the design process. So when you think about how you now combine your passion for fashion, pop culture, 
with being an advocate and now with this language of design, how does that make you think differently of your work, of your platform? Fundamentally, it's trying to change the conversation because particularly with designing for inclusion and designing for disability, historically, we have always looked at it through a medical model and that the function of designing for disability has has always been about lessening an impairment. And whilst that is important, because many people who were designing these products came from the majority and an able-bodied background, often they only viewed it through a medical model and never considered the form of a product all the while considering the function. And for me, I'm a little person. I have a chondroplasia. I have dwarfism. I stand at the height of three foot five inches tall. So one of the designs and one of the products that I use most regularly is a footstool, which seems really simplistic, and it is. But when they're designed, they are usually designed in mind with children or for people with disabilities sometimes. And only the function is ever considered. I'm currently sitting on one now, and it is clickable in place, and it is cerise pink and uh, blue. But it's not something that I would use in public spaces because my dignity nor the emotion attached to a product has ever been considered. So the form is not considered. So actually what I do in public spaces, instead of taking out my stool, which is designed with function in mind but not form, I actually just go without and struggle or ask for assistance. And for me, as regards to the design conversations that I try to have at each of those different levels of the ecosystem, it's about pairing the emotional impact, but also the importance of respecting an individual's independence and dignity, but also the aesthetics, because we sometimes forget that people who are othered in society also want things to look beautiful, and they want to put their money and invest in products that give them a sense of pride too. I mean, that can be an act of exclusion rather than inclusion is to not consider uh, another person's need when, from an emotional perspective when it comes to design, right? Exactly. Or we prioritize aesthetics and beauty. In Ireland, we have beautiful Georgian buildings. They are exceptional. Mm. But we, as a government and as you know, a society, have labeled them as protected buildings because we don't want to fear, interfere with their aesthetic because we feel like they symbolize a particular historic moment, which is very fair. But actually, legally, those who lease the building, those who own the building, are not in a position to make them accessible because that would Mm. interfere with the aesthetics of the building. Mm. Because as a society, we have said that to make something accessible undermines its aesthetic because, again, we look at accessibility as something which is ugly. And for me, my question always is, well, why can we not look at this as an opportunity, again, for innovation and creativity? Why are we not creating a bursary and bringing in leading architects and pairing them with design students and leading designers and asking the questions of how can we enhance the aesthetics of these beautiful, historic, symbolic buildings, all the while increasing access to society? Hmm. That's an amazing example of, of a shift in mindset. So you talked a little bit about being a teacher, and I remember when I met you the first time, you were describing some of your experiences. And how do you think that fits into this conversation? The way in which design impeded my independence in the classroom also offered opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have come about because it was never designed for the children to have independence, only ever the teacher and the adult. So I couldn't reach the blackboard. I couldn't reach the windows. I couldn't reach the light switches. I couldn't reach the walls where there needed to be art put up. 
But what I did instead was build up this relationship of mutual respect between me and the students and found opportunities where they could have leadership. So where I couldn't hang up the artwork in my walls, I had groups of students every week becoming curators of our in-house museum. And in many ways, had I have been the authoritative adult and the teacher in the room who was, you know, physically just a greater size and being able to do things more independently because the design fit, I actually wouldn't have instigated those conversations in my classroom because I just would have done it myself. And I kind of take a step back and realize that initially what looks like an enormous challenge, particularly to employers or perhaps to parents, was a huge opportunity for children to develop skills that otherwise they wouldn't have had to. Right. So inclusion is a teachable skill. And you've had a unique opportunity with lots of challenges, but you've really had a unique opportunity to to teach in that manner. So let's talk a little bit about design now, because we talked about passion as an advocate, but then there's also passion for design and fashion in particular. You've met amazing people, artists, designers, etc. And you have made it your life to surround yourself with people who create and make. And it's clear you get so much joy out of it. So I want to hear about what, what makes you excited also and, and your experience now in using fashion as a tool to, to teach us a, a new way to look at beauty. Yeah, I have been infatuated with the industry of fashion since I was a teenager. And primarily that came about because I felt left out. I would go shopping with my sisters who are younger than me, but average height, and realize that they had access to clothes and wardrobes that were just so out of my reality that it just felt unfair. And my way into the industry was through education because I felt like if I couldn't buy the things that I want, the very least that I could do was at least educate myself so that I could speak about. And through the internet and through blogging, I started a blog because I was irritating everybody around me. And I would say, did you know that Kim Jones has just been appointed to menswear at Dior? And this is going to be revolutionary for LVMH as an entire thing. And my mother would say, that's lovely, Sinead, but is there anybody else that you could talk to about this? So the internet became a space where I could talk about it in a way that was initially just getting the information out of my head. And then it began to find an audience. The internet was a space where my disability didn't impact upon what people thought of me. That bias wasn't at play. And not that I deliberately hid it because my profile photos all indicated that I was a little person, but it gave a space where it wasn't the immediate thing that you recognized. And what was important was my ability to articulate an argument. It was my curiosity in asking questions. But I think even for me growing up as a woman interested in fashion and as a disabled woman interested in fashion, a lot of society, either intentionally or unintentionally, belittled my interest because I think fashion can be seen as facetious. And you so beautifully articulated the fashion industry there as a powerful tool for beauty, but also for transforming how we view women and the world. But yet I think because it is an industry dominated by female voices, there is habit in which we belittle it and undermine it and I often Mm. make the bold comparison between sport but I think it almost hilarious that at the end of every news bulletin we have a notification that a ball has been passed from one end of the field to the other for 90 minutes and a successful outcome has been reached but yet we consider fashion an industry in which everybody has to interact with we all have to wear clothes and yet continuously it was undermined 
I always feel empowered by fashion when I am dressed well, because growing up, people always made the assumption that I was younger than I am, because physically I stand at the height of perhaps a six or seven year old. Whereas if I walk in wearing a top hat, a cape, you know, and fitted trousers, there, it's quite unlikely that you think I'm seven or I have a very, you know, brave and bold mother and parents who dress me <laughs> extraordinarily well for a seven-year-old. So it kind of eliminates that question and curiosity about my ability or about my age. So tell me your Burberry story. From what I can tell on social media, it's been a very special experience. An Irish woman who worked at Burberry, her name is Alice Delahunt. She's now working at Ralph Lauren. She emailed me and we had never met before. And she said, hi, Sinead, I saw your TED Talk. I see you're speaking at the Business of Fashion Voices conference. Would you like to wear Burberry? And I replied back going, thank you so much for thinking of me for this incredible opportunity. But I think this is going to be harder than you might envision it is because you've never dressed anybody like me before. And this is not going to be easy. And she came back and really muted all of my fears and concerns and said, no, we do this all the time. We have the skills in-house to be able to do this. And that really changed my, again, belief in design, because I think one of the fundamental barriers to adaptive fashion is that there is this fear and nervousness from the larger houses that they will have to do something new, that they will have to create a bespoke line for people with disabilities. And although some brands are doing that and doing that very effectively, actually what's most required is an appetite to use the skills that are in-house, including tailoring alterations and adapting, which they do for almost every, whether it is couture client or even celebrity client, they have to alter collections to fit. And I think as a disabled person, all I want is for that service to be made available to me, not at a lesser price, not Mm -hmm. at in any way that will inconvenience the brand, but just as an opportunity. And getting to go to my very first sitting with Burberry in their Regent Street store, it was extraordinary. But immediately the team, Neve Watmore and Ruby Stevens, realized that actually much of the design of the store was inaccessible to me because, again, they hadn't had a client who required those needs. And on my second sitting, when they dressed me for Davids, I did it in Horse Ferry House, which is their headquarters in London. And that team had redesigned that room to fit me. So they had bought a low rail. So that was exactly at my height that I could reach all of the garments. They had cut the legs off tables and chairs so that everything was in reach. And I remember just feeling it was so surreal, thinking this is how it's done. It was the first time that I had been ever able to go through a rail of garments outside of my own personal wardrobe where I could reach things and have a look at it and have a look at the price tags and feel the clothes up close with regards to the neckline. And I mean, those are the various different technicalities that are just required within a brand. And it's more the thought and the retraining of staff with empathy and built in that training rather than redesigning a whole collection. Right. Again, so this is thinking inclusively is something that we can teach each other. And if we do that, the solutions come um, with this new knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's such a great story. That made me so happy. Let's let's talk a little bit about you going to Davos for the first time this year. (laughs) (laughs) And tell me a little bit about what 
that experience was like for you going as a woman, as a little person, and, and as an advocate in, in this environment for the first time? What was that like? I had spoken at a conference in Dublin probably in April or May last year. And there was somebody else speaking at a different part of the, the, the day of the conference who worked at the World Economic Forum. And he heard me speak and he came up to me afterwards and he said, you must visit our offices in, in Geneva and speak to our staff. And I very kindly said, that would be lovely. Thank you so much. And I went to the office and I met the entire team. And we had a very frank and honest discussion in relation to inclusion and diversity and how as individuals who shape a global agenda for some of the key power players within the industry, the responsibility that they have to also be inclusive and the responsibility that they have to be reflective of the wider society. And at the end of the conversation, individuals from the civic society group said, do you have any interest in coming to Davos? And I said, um, sure. <laughs> and they said, well, you're not a political leader, nor are you CEO for a large global conglomerate. So we will have to do some internal work in terms of making the rationale for the validity of your voice at Davos. And I said, brilliant, if it happens. And then the invitation came in and I said, great. And they offered me a number of speaking opportunities and I kind of thought, oh, that sounds great. And they said, Sinead, do you realize that there are 3,000 delegates at Davos with 600 opportunities between the 3,000 of them and you have four? And I went, oh, okay, big deal, sure, no problem. And I think Davos was fundamentally transformative for me in terms of my own self-confidence and self-efficacy. Because I think within the space of advocacy and advocates, there is not necessarily a level of imposter syndrome, but it's trying to pair this idea of the lived experience and validating it within an industry where qualifications are perhaps more important or at least considered in a different way. And although I have both working within the design realm, particularly coming to it from a new space, I wasn't sure about the validity of my voice. And Davos proved that. And it gave me a real sense of confidence coming home about what I could do and what the responsibilities I had to do. But getting to speak alongside individuals such as Tim Brown, getting to speak to, you know, Queen Rania of Jordan or the head of the European Research Council or getting to speak with Lonnie Bunch, who is the founding director of the National History Museum for African-American Culture, the new Smithsonian Museum in Washington, and getting to speak about the pairing of advocacy and art and culture and how we can retell stories in a very empathetic way was extraordinary. And one of my key questions within this is, what then happens to the advocates? How are they mm -hmm. stabilized and ensured that their advocacy can continue? And we had mm -hmm. a really challenging but wonderful conversation about whether or not advocates should be supported by companies and organizations that require their mm -hmm. insight whether or not they need to become consultants, whether or not they need to hone and define a particular expertise in order for their voices to be valid within this domain, or whether or not they need to become part of design companies in order to fully benefit this relationship. And we didn't come up with an answer, which is also wonderful because since I've come home from Davos, I'm still percolating on all of those different responses. But it was incredible. Fantastic. You know, I've been thinking a lot about when we went to D.C. together a couple of years ago to celebrate inclusion and design at the White House. And I noticed then for many advocates, there is this tension between representing people with their own specific and, and granted underserved needs versus coming together to create a much larger platform like 
a voting block for all disabilities, for example. So when you think about your role as an advocate for people with disabilities, as well as someone who can hold a conversation around inclusion in a much broader sense, do you feel a tug one way or another? Um, how do you navigate that tension in your own identity? Absolutely. And for me, I think that identity piece is probably entrenched in language. And it's probably best documented in terms of how my own language has changed as mm. I have grown up. You know, in my early teenage years, I would have always described myself as just Sinead. It wasn't until I began to go to college and realize that there was quite a few injustices in the world around me that I began to look up the legislation. And what I began to quickly realize was that there was no legislation that provided for the safekeeping and equal access to people who are, in quotes, just like Sinead. And as I got a little bit older, I began to refer to myself as a person with a disability because I felt like the person aspect of it really amplified and resonated that I was a person first and then I had a disability. And it wasn't until I was probably in my mid-20s that I began to realize what I was unintentionally doing was erasing my disability and was putting it in this framework of negativity and almost embarrassment. And I'm not in any way saying that that's what people who use that language are doing, but that's the way in which I was thinking about it. And it was in my mid-20s that a shift in language and identity occurred that I would now describe myself as a disabled feminist. And I'm very proud to be disabled because a lot of the skills that I have and even the personal traits and characteristics that exist within me have been shaped and formulated by my disability. So I would often say that I am organized, creative and articulate by nature. But that's not necessarily because I have wanted to be, but because I've had to be. And being a little person has demanded those skills be honed. So, you know, walking into a public bathroom, I cannot reach the lock on a toilet cubicle door. So my immediate reaction is to turn a bin upside down or to use my phone or to approach a stranger and ask them for assistance. And I have been doing those things since I was eight or nine. So understandably, I am a fan of language and able to use vocabulary probably far advanced than an eight-year-old should have been. And in many ways, that identity piece has really been formulated also within my advocacy. That I think there is always this friction of wanting to just be Sinead and to be allowed to be the person that you are, all the while conscious that you are the person that you are because you are disabled. And I think anybody who is a othered or a minority voice, this friction exists, particularly within an open forum, whether it be in the media. You know, we often critique interviewers who speak to a woman and ask them about what they wear or ask them about pregnancy or ask them about childhood and child rearing in a way that we wouldn't with a man or somebody who, you know, adheres to those binaries of gender. And I think it is a broader conversation that needs to happen within society, that perhaps there is a space in which you can be an advocate for the minority community or the community that you represent. But there also has to be a space in which you can just be yourself. Thank you for getting into that. You just gave me an idea or a note for, for future interviews for with men. I need to remember to ask them about 
their wardrobe and their families. Because yeah. um, <laughs> I, I don't really do that with women, but maybe that's the point, is yeah. to just practice turning it <laughs> around. So ending with this moment that we're in, what gives you hope and optimism? Who's doing something right? What could we learn from them? If you have other, other examples uh, that you've come across or any other collaborations that you've had recently, I'd love to hear. I think it's about collaboration is what the root of success, or at least that's what I'm seeing. And whether that is incredible individuals like Open Style Lab, who continuously collaborate with persons and design students mm-hmm. and persons and yep. you know people with disabilities and disabled people enter into that educational process all the time. And that for me, whilst working with design students, it's not necessarily the education that occurs in that moment that's important, and it is. But we have no idea where those design students will be in 10 to 15 years. And it's the possible opportunities that that then opens for the conversations and the curiosity that they may instigate in very large conglomerates or within their own brand and making those decisions that, again, is making that change sustainable. I think also what the Smithsonian and design museums are doing as regards to exhibiting accessibility, both as a motif of function, but also as a motif of form. And I know they've had incredible people like Lucy Jones just being added to their permanent collection and opening up the conversation, not just within the disabled community, but within society at large, because I think one of the things that we often forget about disability and design and adaption and inclusion is that at any moment within our lives, we can become momentarily disabled, whether it is crutches that we need because of a broken bone or even looking at the aging population that continues to exist within our society. Has our inclusion and our design thinking been incorporated into how we are evolving communities and what the needs of those individuals are? So I think often we can think about disability and design as something which, well, it doesn't impact upon me, but actually it might, and maybe not now, but it's still something in which you should have care for, consideration for, curiosity for, but also that should be rooted in empathy because I don't think we can continue this conversation with an us versus them mentality, but actually it's something that we will all require at some stage within our existence. I couldn't agree more. It, it is such a really important way of looking at ability and disability for all of us. Is there anything that comes up for you that you would like to talk about, given that you have time and you have an audience and this and that, that I haven't sort of touched upon? I would love for us to be more inclusive in the development of design standards, particularly for the disabled community, and for it to be more reflective of the spectrum of disability that exists but also the symbolism of disability, because what we have from an international standard at the moment is the symbol of a wheelchair user. And whilst that's very much adequate, but also incredibly important, I would love for some thinking to be undertaken and for some design to be undertaken as regards to creating a cacophony of symbols almost that fully represents the disabled community, because to the best of my knowledge, there is no standard symbol for being a little person. And I think there needs to be a broader conversation around that representation within design structures, design proposals, and design for people who are outside of wheelchair users. Yeah. The symbols that we use as a society and that we make as as designers are 
really powerful in that they really reflect where we are emotionally and socially as a culture at any given time. And once they're out there in the world, it takes sort of a movement to change or to rev. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, what comes to my mind when you're talking about disability being depicted as a person in a wheelchair is that we're not even talking about disabilities that are not visible or that may be temporary, but to your point, because we all are at at certain times and certain points. So what's the biggest frame that we might be able to create for including everyone, right? So maybe it's moving away from depicting certain states of ability and disability to to actually focusing on, on the real deal, which is to make environments, experiences, and things that that actually truly are shared by (laughs) everyone. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. I hope it's warmer in San Francisco than it is here in Dublin. I'm pretty sure it is, yes. (laughs) Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. 